Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinnerkline. The bad white man calling the devil. The Yavapai calling eyes like the sky. Welcome, everybody. Andrew Garrett, great to have you here with um, my buddy and co-host, Daniel Pinner-Klein. My name is Ron Cecil. This is um, Cutting for Sign, episode one. Welcome, man. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, gentlemen. Yeah, really excited. Andrew, um, first of all, you are kind of a man about town in Portland, Oregon, and the food scene, and you're also a vet. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about that journey about going and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong and I'm sorry if this sounds weird, but you're a disabled vet. Correct. Is that, is that right? Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about that and tell me how you got into the food scene and we'll, and we'll start digging from there. Oh man. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, it's a long, long story. I mean, it's 30 years of, uh, of food and beverage really. Uh, I started, I, I grew up on a small farm in Northern California and we hunted, fished and grew, uh, a lot of our own food. I mean, not necessarily homesteading, uh, level, but at a level that was pretty, pretty impressive. I mean, I, I don't think I ate anything. I don't think I, I consumed proteins that my father and I had not either hunted or raised ourselves, uh, for a really long time. Uh, but you know, my, my love of food started there and it, it was kind of wow. a place that things were settled and it was calm. It was the only time my mom and dad didn't really yell at each other was when we were sitting at a dinner table. So I, I had this, this real deep love for food and, uh, you know, it, it, my interest as a kid grew into an interest as a young adult. Uh, it was the only class in, in high school that I really went to and paid attention to wanted to do extra credit in. Um, you know, I, I was one of the first kids to help move from a classic, like home ec type, uh, class to a, a proper culinary arts program at our high school. And, you know, I really fell in love with it. I worked in restaurants all through high school, uh, to help support my mom. And, you know, if I, essentially, if I wanted something for sports or hunting, I had to buy it myself. And the only way to really buy it myself was to work for it. Uh, so I had a lot of jobs working in delis. Uh, I umpired youth baseball, uh, you know, mowed lawn, split wood, all kinds of different activities. Uh, and then when I joined the military, uh, I had the option to go to Germany and I took it. And so I went to Germany for three years and was able to essentially travel Europe at a discounted rate, uh, you know, for three years and be, be in the middle of, uh, Tuscany within a 12 hour train ride. I could go to Paris in eight hours. You know, I was living this culinary life. I happened to be stationed with a guy who was, uh, a graduate of Johnson and Wales culinary school. So he and I were able to bond and share our love for food and cuisine and just kind of see the world doing it. Um, it was super, super fortunate. And then when I got out of the army, the only thing that made sense was food. Uh, it was the only thing that kind of ex- 
accepted my lifestyle choices at the time of uh, alcohol and cocaine. Uh, you know, I could I could go full throttle all day long at the restaurant, high as a kite, get done, go drink with the team, and do it all over again the next day. And you know, this is my my early to mid twenties and just ripping it uh, as fast what? as I possibly could. You know, what years were these? This was two thousand. I, I graduated high school in the year two thousand, and I got home in two thousand three. So from two thousand three to two thousand seven, it was kind of just go nuts. Yeah, <laughs> it, it seems like the restaurant world um, can get pretty rowdy with drugs and alcohol. I, I, I've spent a little bit of time in that world, and definitely, you know was like in the car and getting like people are passing booze out as we're coming home from like a catering event or something like that. And we're drinking on the way home and then drinking all the catered alcohol that the customer didn't, you know, didn't consume, but bought. <laughs> it seems, seems like that might be kind of a thing in that restaurant industry. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was it, from the get go. I mean, even when I was a, a high school kid working in my PB football coaches, Italian family restaurant is like, you know, we would drink in the back as I was washing dishes. They'd bring me, you know, a glass of wine that didn't get finished at the table. And bear in mind, did not get finished at a table. And I would drink that wine. So, you know, I made, I was built in to to just find alcohol and drink it as fast as I could from from the get go. Um, But it was totally accepted. You know, no one, no one ever said, Hey, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. It was, (laughs) look, he's doing it again you know, uh, almost laughable experience. And then as you get in older and learn about more intense things like doing cocaine before a shift and everybody's just, you know, let's go as fast as hard as we possibly can. Uh, it was, how was, it that, was, how was that introduced? I've, I, I mean, I'm, I drank a lot so much so that I've had to stop drinking, but I've seen cocaine like one time in my life and I'm probably, you know, some people are like, well, where the fuck have you been? But like, you know, I've, yeah. what was that, what was that experience like when you're, you know, you're going like along and suddenly someone's like, Hey, do you want to snort? <laughs> like, how's it even, how's it even start? Um, I was actually at a party at a, I probably shouldn't say who it is just because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, at a celebrity's home in Sonoma, California. And the celebrity wasn't there. That so that's the other part of that is celebrity wasn't there. My friend was house sitting. My friend app also happened to be a, a a dealer of cocaine, and he was like, "Hey, you want to try this?" So I was like, "Sure, why not?" And yeah. from the first time it hit my my brain that it was, "Wow, how do I get more of this?" Wow. Um, you know, I went from passing out at twelve p.m. twelve a.m. to, "Well, I could go until six a.m. now." And wow. just, you know, it, it was intense. I mean, my desire at that time was to be the coolest possible person to the greatest number of people. And so I was always trying to impress people. And a lot of that was, you know, I look back on it now, 13 years sober, and I say, wow, like that was a mess. You know, I'm so grateful that social media phone cameras were not available in those years uh-huh. <laughs> I, I think about the insanity that that my uh history would be um but yeah you know he, he introduced me to it i dove into it and we were you know i was off and running it turns out you can't 
sell cocaine if you do cocaine uh, because then you just do all the things you're supposed to be selling and then you owe people money. Um, Is that it, what happened to your it, friend? It, it, what happened to me? Oh. oh. <laughs> In my mind, I was like, oh, if I'm, if I'm the source, yeah. then everybody else has an easy, you know, then I can be cool. Plus I yeah. can have this thing that I really need. But I stopped caring about being cool and just caring more about the things that I needed. What what made you stop caring about being cool? You know, that's that seems like a hard, hard, uh, difficult line to cross and a transition to make. It really is. Uh, it's been a. It, it's happened three times in my life now, uh, where I've I've decided that being cool isn't really what I want to be. Uh, I I have a huge ego problem. Um, you know, I. I think I'm either the greatest thing in the world or I'm the worst thing in the world. And there's, there's when I'm in level, when I'm in balance, I can be really good. Uh, but when I'm on that, I'm better than everybody peak, it's really ugly. And when I'm on that, I'm not ever going to be as good as anybody else peak. It's also really ugly. And so the first time, you know, I, I just kind of hit this spiritual bottom where I really didn't have anything in my life that, uh, felt right. You know, I was in this real extreme of not being as good as anybody else. And it was really empty. And I just kind of threw it all in and got humble and asked God for help. And, uh, I think that through that, you know, I wound up in Portland, Oregon and working in a restaurant where there were three guys that were all sober and all working a program and, three to five years younger than myself. And, you know, that, that was the first real humbling point where I was like, I don't need to be cool anymore. Like, I don't need to be the the real famous guy. Uh, how long was this just, after your, sorry to interrupt. Oh, go, just, go ahead. For a timeline, how long was this after that 2003 military experience ended? This is four years. Four years later? Two, 2007, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so it, and and yeah, what kinda, number... What number bottom was that, that you, yeah, you know, good question. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first real bottom. Uh, okay. a, lot people, a lot of people ask me that question because it, it is like there were, you know, I had been arrested in high school. Uh, I lost a scholarship in high school because I got busted for having uh, weed and alcohol on me in a town that wasn't my own. Uh, Cause I mean, growing up in a small town, very much like you see on TV or kind of emulated in, in pop culture is, the star of the football team, the, the athlete, you get everything handed to you. Right. Mm. And, you know, I've been the same physical size and build since I was a freshman in high school. So I was this very dominant man sized human living in, in a high school world. And, you know, I could do anything I wanted in my hometown, my hometown, the sheriffs went bad an eye, you know, Oh, Hey, Oh, Garrett, we're going to take you home now. And they take mm. me home, you know, they, it was, it was kind of obnoxious. You know, I didn't have to really study in school. Um, I could just kind of get by cause no one really wanted to mess with, Oh, we don't, you know, we got to keep them on the field. Got to keep them on the field. Can't have them great out. Wow. And, uh, you know, that really built me up. Cause I mean, here I am, this, this kid that could get away with anything. Uh, but the one time I go party in the town across, across the Valley at our rival high school's, you know, town, cops there they don't care about you 
<laughs> they don't care about my me. They want to they want to get us in trouble. And uh, you know, I got popped and got an MIP and got in trouble. And you would think that that would be kind of a bottom for a high school kid at that point, but it wasn't. Um, I was championed by my friends back home. Oh, you showed you showed Casa, uh, and it was that. Um, you know, I wound up our senior. I don't know if you guys had this in high school, but senior day. You know, all the seniors go out and you know two or three days before graduation, and you party real hard. Um, I was. We were at our our place. It's called Morton's Hot Springs. Uh, it's in Kenwood, California, just outside of Sonoma. And, uh, I had been drinking all day long. It's a hundred degrees. I've probably got heat stroke going and someone's like, Oh, do a gainer off the backboard. Do a get, do, do a gainer, do a gainer. So I go jump off the, the diving board and I try to do this gainer and I flip and I hit my head and my back on the diving board and I go face first into the water. A buddy of mine dives in, pulls me out. Oh yeah. Uh, whatever. Keep drinking. About two hours later, I passed out. I stopped breathing, um, and everybody split. Everybody took off because here's this guy that's that's clearly going to die uh, from alcohol or heat exhaustion. Two of my friends stayed. One of them gave me mouth mouth resuscitation until the ambulance got there. Uh, took me to the emergency room that my mother was the admin at. Um, so she gets a call that a high school teenage kids coming in, you know, code three on an ambulance and I come to the door and it's me. Um, and that was, you would think again, like that's the bottom, right? Not a chance. Like I didn't learn my lesson. Oh, I'm just a kid being a kid. I made a mistake, screwed up. Uh, mm. you know, at that point I'd lost my scholarship. I knew I was going to the army. Like what does it matter? And, uh, you know, I, I, I chased that. I, I chased that alcohol for so long, just, trying to be so cool, you know, who could drink the most, who could do the most outlandish thing and you know, breaking bottles over my head, putting my head through fences, you know, punching walls, whatever it was that I thought people were going to think was cool. I would do it just because I thought, you know, I want to be cool. I needed to feed this ego <laughs> and uh, it let me down some really crazy places. Um, you know, I chose to go to Germany specifically because it would get me out of my hometown, but the drinking age is 18. So I could drink when I got there. You know, it, it was it was an actual thought in the process of joining the military and going to Germany was, oh, I can drink there. And, uh, you know, the number of fights and stupid things that I got into while I was in the military, it, it turned into a joke uh, within my unit of, you know, if you could keep Garrett away from booze and girls, he's the best soldier in the army. And, you know, I, I think that that's very true to most alcoholics is, we're extremely intelligent people with extremely good skill sets, right? And we have to develop those as kind of a manipulation through life because if we're failing, if we're falling apart, if things are just, you know, all over the place and we're a mess and we're that wino on the corner, people are going to ask us questions, right? People are going to say, oh, you have a problem. You need to get this taken care of. But I think that somewhere in our, in our makeup and our addictive self and this, this weird psyche that we create, we just want everybody to think that everything's fine. So we perform at this really high level. We're really intelligent. We're really fantastic manipulators. And we're able to kind of shift that, oh, you know what? It's just a weekend problem. He just has a, a problem with these exterior things. You know, so no one ever actually asked the question like, oh, are you okay? Like, do you, do you think you have a problem? <laughs> On the outside looking in, 
there's nothing. You know, this guy's a great soldier. I was the youngest tank gunner in the United States Army for a year because I was so determined to be the best at what I could possibly be that no one would question what I did outside of it. Um, Almost the same thing as when you were in high school with football, I mean. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Um, You know, and that was the pattern. And again, you would think that I hit another bottom when the U.S. Army was like, hey, you missed a deployment because you stuck your arm through a window chasing somebody to fight them. Uh, You missed a deployment. You're getting your rank dropped and, you know, you're, you're not really performing the way you should. You're losing your position as a tank gunner. Like, you're going back to the bottom. That didn't change anything. Came back from that deployment, and the U.S. Army was like, you're going to rehab. And again, like, wow. I'm a good enough soldier that instead of them just saying, hey, see you later, guy. Like, you're done. Their, their choice was, oh, we're going to send you to rehab because we think that you have an opportunity. And, you know, I went to rehab in 2002 uh, in Kaiserslautern, Germany. And uh, uh, during 2002 were some of the bloodiest battles of the Afghan war, the, the war in Afghanistan. And so I'm at this army military hospital that's a regional center. So all these guys and gals that are getting you know, shot at and just having their, their, their world turned upside down are coming to this hospital to be treated. And I'm there because I can't drink normally. Right. Yeah. And wow. you know, you'd think again, Oh, there's <laughs> a bottom. Not at all. Not at all. You know, I sat in AA meetings through that and I listened to these old retired generals and colonels talk about losing their houses and their wives and all these, you know, things that at the time to me were like, Oh, poor me. Wham, wham. And the reality was that those things were just a short ways away from, from where I was. And, you know, I did everything I could to manipulate the system, say all the right things and just, you know, get through. And, uh, you know, I got back and immediately within, I think I went to like two or three German AA meetings. And I don't know if you're familiar with German AA, but they're, they're two and a half hour meetings. They're the longest AA meetings <laughs> ever sit in. Um, and they're intense. And a lot of them are not in English. And How long is speak, a... An AA meeting normally. I, I've never been to one, so I don't. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> See, I just assume everybody's an alcoholic these days. It makes it easier for me to like feel comfortable. Uh, it's, you're, you know, your typical AA meeting is only an hour long. So, okay. you know, and that's not, you know, sometimes there's an hour and a half meeting where there's like a 15 minute break for everybody to go outside, smoke a cigarette, have a cup of coffee, come back in, and finish the meeting. Uh, because again, we're alcoholics. We have a very short, like. <laughs> Uh, memory attention span right Um, and if it's not all about me then I really don't give a shit you know and that's that's the attitude I had at that time it's like eh this doesn't affect me I'm just gonna do whatever I can to get the heat off my back go back to doing what I was doing Uh, and within six months you know I was was drunk and in a fight and missing another deployment because I was in jail Uh, and so you were in a German jail German drunk tank. It's the worst possible place to be. Absolutely worst because the Germans don't have just tasers. They have cattle prods. Like they, they look like cattle prods. But when yeah. they hit you with that, it'll burn your skin, leave a scar. 
uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, and, and I missed another deployment and finally got to the deployment got my butt chewed real good, lost more rank. Um, uh, at that point I was, uh, less rank. It, I, so the way the military works is, is you go in as, you know, E1, E2, E3, and you can, depending on what your job is, you can kind of go up the ladder pretty quick. Uh, I was on tanks and tanks are a combat unit. So you can amass rank relatively quickly. I went from E2 to E4 promotable. So I was in line to become a non-commissioned officer within a matter of 18 months, which is kind of ungodly. It's un unheard of really. Um, there are a lot of people that do it in that, in, in tanks, in combat arms, uh, infantry, special forces. You're, you're able to achieve those things pretty quick. And, uh, I lost them within 18 months. You know, I went down to, a, I was at a rank below what I entered in, uh, <laughs> at the same time that I, that I gained this, this great, you know, achievement. Again, like it didn't hit me to the bottom. Uh, they sent me back to the, um, I had blown my knee out when I was in Kosovo, got surgery. They sent me back to the rear, uh, back the rear being Germany, uh, sent me back to Germany. And I was there with a bunch of what I considered, you know, less than soldiers, uh, including non-commissioned officers and officers who outrank me. And, you know, they had me doing stuff that I thought was below me, waxing floors, sweeping, mopping. And I'm, you know, I'm just out of knee surgery. And I talked back to them and got myself in a little bit more trouble. And they're like, it's time for you to go. And uh, wow. I was able to leave the military during a full stop loss in 2003. And if you're not familiar with a stop loss is, essentially it says if you're supposed to get out of the military, retire or anything else, you don't get to. Wow. If you're in, you're in. And they were like, hey, thanks for, thanks for being here. Uh, have a great safe flight. You know, let, you need help packing. Like, um, That's where I was. But I, I was fortunate enough, again, because, you know, I was such a good soldier that I didn't, I didn't exit with a less than honorable discharge. Yeah. So I left with an honorable discharge because I, at the end of the day, I served very honorably. I, I did a great job when I was in the field, when we were deployed, but you know, it, when we were not, it was a mess. Uh, <laughs> that's my military career in a nutshell. Um, so yeah, said, a, sorry, ahead, wrong, no, please. no, I mean, it sounds like you're, you know, you're, you've got these like parallel paths of, of accomplishment. And one is like, you're a super accomplished soldier, you know, food industries, we'll get into that in a moment, but you're also an accomplished drunk and, and like accomplished at drinking and like covering your tracks and like, you know, part going hard and then essentially able to like maintain that in the normal world. Uh, like, you know, the fact that you got out of the military, like you're pushed out of the military in, a, in an insane time, and then somehow you didn't get dishonorably discharged is, you know, you know, either you're slick as shit, right? Like you're like, like you've got the, the silver tongue and, and able to work your weasel your way out of there. Or, you know, you're, I mean, that's amazing. That's totally amazing. Um, what happened afterwards? I mean, it seems like, I mean, you know, I'm in recovery too in February, mid-February. I'm going to have seven years of not drinking, which I'm pretty proud of. And, um, you know, there's a saying that I've heard in, in recovery, and that is like, 
it gets worse. If you're not dealing with this addiction in your life, like it's going to get worse. And, and I've seen that in my friends. So what, so how can it get worse than that? <laughs> uh, that's the, it's one of the things that I love to really share. Um, because for me, the, the real bottom wasn't this physically sick. It wasn't this, you know, uh, you know, I didn't get the job or I lost the job or I, I got, you know, asked not to come back. Um, for me, I, I had moved, I had made the decision, uh, leading up to moving to Portland, which is really where everything kind of changed around for me. Um, Leading up to that point, I had uh, I had put a loaded shotgun in my mouth. Uh, I had been willing to take my own life in a drunken, uh, drug-induced kind of like insanity. Um, and at that point, I was like, "Hey, wow, no more alcohol." You know what? You guys are right. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to drink anymore. That's it. When was and that? I quit drinking. That was 2006. Okay. No, 2000, 2005. So you got out of the mili- military around 2003 and then continued to kind of spiral or like struggle for a f- couple, few more years. Exactly. Um, you know, I got out and I found cooking and that was you know the place that was accepted. I tried doing construction and, uh, but I could never get back from the lunch break that I had a beer at because a beer turned into a night. So, uh, cooking just made sense. It was, it was almost welcome to have that like party mentality. <laughs> In it. Um, so I'm going to pause you real quick. Cause I think we're three, we're, we're, we just have new three white dudes in our, in our late thirties, early forties. And we also happen to be the demographic that is like struggling with, um, uh, death by suicide the most. Um, and if you, if you haven't been touched by that in your life, you know, someone has been touched by that in your life. And, um, so I don't want to move too quickly on from that little like detail of your story. You said something about a shotgun in your mouth. Like that's pretty nuts, man. What happened? Yeah. Um, you know, you, it was kind of the beginning of where the real bottom for me is. Um, and still is today. Um, and, and I consider this kind of this, this continual bottom that, that exists in my world. Is it for me, a bottom isn't this, singular place where I lost a job, lost a house, lost a girlfriend, lost a friend, you know, whatever the physical or tangible attachment that I have, that's not my bottom. You know, that's, that's not where I'm emptiest. Uh, for me, it's when I'm, I'm completely spiritually done. Right. When I have no connection to God or uh, any kind of spiritual universal piece of the puzzle where I want to connect with, outside of myself. Uh, yeah. And that's it, where I, I had landed. And, you know, all my friends had stopped me to, had asked me to stop coming around parties because I'd get in fights. I'd hit on other people's girlfriends and uh, just to cause a scene, not, not because I wanted to talk to these girls or, or talk to these guys or have any interaction just to be the center of attention. I would create these, these issues. And I was at a friend's party and my friend is a duck hunter, deer hunter. And, uh, I had, from what I understand, because I was, I was blackout drunk, from what I understand of, of how the story goes, um, I had hit on this guy's girlfriend. She was flirting back with me. The guy comes over and gets in my face. I punch him. 
there's a whole scene and all my friends are yelling at me because I'm just being me and doing what I always do. I'm drinking. And they're like, this is why we don't want you around us. You know, you don't belong here. And I took that and I was like, well, you know what? Like, you're right. And I was empty and sad and pissed off. And I wanted the attention back on me in a positive way. And so I went to my buddy's house, locked myself in a room with his gun and uh, put a shotgun in my mouth. And that friend had to break a window of his house to get in to the room and wrestle a loaded gun away from a, a man-sized drunk idiot. Um, just, you know, it, at that point, when I woke up the next day and someone told me what had happened, because again, I don't remember any of this. I'm in, I'm in a blackout state. When I woke up and, you know, no one wanted to talk to me and, hey, what are you guys doing today? Hey, just, just go away, man. Like, don't talk to us. And I was like, well, what happened? Like, I don't, I don't, what do you, why? And they explained it to me and I was like, you know what? I'm never drinking again. You guys are finally right. I'm never drinking again. And from that point, I never drank again. Uh, oh, wow. Because alcohol was clearly the problem. Alcohol was clearly the problem that I had. Uh, it wasn't uh, drugs or ego or lack of humility. It was, it was alcohol. And if I could remove the alcohol, then everything was fine. Uh, wasn't the case. So I kept doing cocaine. Um, when I quit drinking, I wound up being really good at cooking and, you know, I was really able to develop myself as a young chef and kind of grow into my, my culinary career. I wound up working at a restaurant called Latitude, uh, in Northern California. And I started there as kind of a baseline prep cook. And within two years, I was the executive sous chef working for a James Beard winning chef. Um, And, you know, I, I was really, I just dove in and to me, cocaine, ecstasy, uh, speed really helped me to, to focus my energy on those things. Uh, at the same time, I'm dating a woman who I, I now live with. Her father is in recovery and I've, you know, explained to her how I don't do drugs. I'm sober and well, I don't go to AA. I don't go to treatment because I don't need that. I don't need that to quit the whole time I'm doing Coke and ecstasy and, and speed and just trying to like, you know, maintain this level, this the kit facade of like who I am. And, uh, you know, it, we hit a point where that wasn't working anymore. I'd lay in bed, sweating, heart racing, you know, just, Oh, what's wrong? Are you okay? You should go see a doctor. Cause it's like, that's not what normal people do. No, I'm fine. I just had a really rough day at work. I was really stressed out. Um, cocaine wasn't something that I did as like, Oh, we're going to a party and let's, let's have fun. Like cocaine was something I did by myself in our apartment. And <laughs> who does cocaine by themselves in their apartment? Right? Like nobody does. It, that's, that's what an addict does. That's what an alcoholic does. And that's where I was. And I had hired my Coke dealer, uh, to be a dishwasher at the rest at the banquet golf course that I was a chef at. And because I was tired of driving to Walmart to go get Coke. So I was like, well, if I can just hire you as a part-time dishwasher, I always have it whenever I need it. That's like craftiness you were talking about, Ronald. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's a, like it's smart, smart, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, but yeah, you know, I hired him and, and it was, uh, every, the wheels were starting to fall off, right? Like, I wasn't performing well at my job. I couldn't stay focused. Things were falling apart at home. The girlfriend was kind of like starting to get a little bit weary of really what I was doing. 
And she got accepted to a master's in psychology program in Forest Grove at uh, Pacific University. And she was moving. And I had a choice. I, I could either stay in Sonoma County, keep doing what I'm doing, or I can you know, jump on this train where I don't have to have money to uh, pay for the move. She's going to pay for everything. Got a place to stay. Like, I was like, you know what? It's time. And so I took that uh, as an opportunity to leave Sonoma County and change my life. Uh, but it turns out alcohol and cocaine aren't my problems. I'm, I, my problems, like my internalness, no matter where I go, there I am kind of thing. And, uh, so we moved to Portland and the first job I'm supposed to go to work for is just kind of prolonging itself and the restaurant's not opening. It's not opening. It's not opening. And, you know, I was like, this is supposed to be my, my opportunities. I'm supposed to be the executive sous chef, chef de cuisine of a place that, going to blow Portland's food scene out of the water. Uh, it was in the new building, the South waterfront. It's going to be awesome. And everybody's going to know who I am. As soon as I get here, splash, here's Andrew Garrett and I'm on the scene and, and this is what we're doing now. Uh, and that never opened. And we were there for two months and I hit a point where I was like, I've got to get a job. <laughs> like I can't just not have a job and wait for this restaurant to open. So as I was walking home, uh, we lived over on Northwest 22nd Everett, uh, and pretty much 22nd Avenue. And I was walking home off 23rd and there's a sign in the window of a restaurant called 23 Hoyt that says daytime sous chef wanted. I'm like, Oh, interesting. So I get home, get on Craigslist. And sure enough, that pot, that ad they're they're posting pops up in my face again. And I'm like, well, daytime sous chef, it's not really what I want to do. I'm not going to be that important, but I need a job. And so took the job, Told him, hey, you know, I'm waiting for something bigger, but I'm going to be here in the meantime. And I went to work for them. And within two or three weeks, I really got to know the staff, the other cooks. And I started talking to the other cooks. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're going, you know, you guys going out to drink? Like, what do you guys do? I was like, oh, I'm just going, I'm going home. You know, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go home because I, I know if I go out with them, I'm going to go get drunk. And that's not why I'm here. I'm here to get sober and change my life. I just need to say it. And a few of the guys started noticing that I didn't go out when everybody else was. And they're like, hey, are you sober? Like, you you don't drink or anything? And it's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I've been sober for, you know, three months since I've been here. And they're like, oh, you go to meetings? Like, oh, I don't go to meetings. I don't need meetings. Meetings, are, you know, I, I stay sober on my own. like, you don't, you don't do anything, though. I was like, yeah. Was like, well, why don't you come with us? We don't drink. You know, come with us and come hang out tonight. And I went and hung out with them and we went uh, pallet surfing. Uh, if you're not familiar with pallet surfing, you tie a rope to the back of your buddy's diesel truck in an empty parking lot. You stand on top of a, a wood pallet and they drive as fast as they can in circles around a, a parking lot and you hold on for dear life. And we did that and I was hooked. I was in, I was like, Oh my God, you guys are having fun living your lives, doing these things sober. Like perfect. The insanity that I need is right here. And then they're like, hey, you should come to a meeting with us. I'm like, all right, okay, cool, yeah, I'm going to go to a meeting with you guys. Yeah, my girlfriend's at home. She, she thinks that I'm sober. She thinks that I've been sober our, our two years that we've been together. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to go to an AA meeting. And she's all excited. She's, she's in support of her dad in the program. And uh, I, get, I get there, and in this basement, uh, and, and AA meetings have very specific looks to them. 
You, know, you can walk into any church basement, any like any place that an AA meeting exists, look on the walls to know you're in an AA meeting uh, hall where people come to talk about sobriety and being clean. And, you know, on, on the wall of this basement are honesty, or I'm sorry, love, respect, honesty, and courage uh, on the back of the wall in this basement. They're lit up. And I'm sitting in the back of this dark room. It's a, it's a midnight meeting. And I'm just in there looking at this sign that says honesty. And it's just just glaring at me as if it was the brightest thing in the room, just just blaring. And I realized, you know what? I haven't been honest with uh, with Natalie. I'm going to go home. I went And without consulting anybody or talking to anybody like, hey, you know what? My girlfriend doesn't know that I've not been sober the whole time we've been together. I'm going to go home and tell her. So I get home and I'm super excited. And I tell her everything. Tell her about the cocaine, the ecstasy, the, the speed, the borrowing money from my mom to pay our bills. Tell her everything. And uh, she said, I'm leaving. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, you're leaving? <laughs> but I just told you the truth. Like, I'm being honest with you. Um, and it, it, she left and she followed through on it. Uh, wow. And uh, that's when the first time I ever hit a real bottom started to happen and it wasn't because i lost this relationship it's because now i'm living alone in an apartment that is empty she had all the furniture because nothing was mine because i couldn't afford to buy anything but uh, no real friends no real place to go and i'm absolutely empty and broken and for me that that emptiness that that lack of guidance the lack of anything led to this really cool spiritual awakening for me and I don't know what it was or why it was, but one day I'm just like, this is God's plan. Like, this is, this is the plan. This is where I'm supposed to be. And instead of putting myself, you know, through the ringer again, I, I chose to call those guys that I had gone to an AA meeting with and done these weird, sober, fun things with. And I started living life and all of a sudden I had this like newfound desire to find God and get involved with going back to church and, and being, you know, around people that had this spiritualness to them. And in a sense, spirituality became this real drug and alcohol thing for me because it, it filled that need. It filled my gap. It filled that emptiness. Uh, it allowed me to just be whole. And that lasted for a really long time until I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm better than this. You know, again, the ego came back. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that anything else happened in my life. I was really happy. I was doing well, had a nice apartment, had friends, had groups of people that I enjoyed being around. I was working a daytime sous chef job so I could do other things in my life, like go back to playing rugby. And, you know, all these other things in my life were starting to exist again. And I'm like, this is awesome. But then this little thing stuck in the back of my head. It's like, you're not being, no one, no one really appreciates, you know, how much you are, Right. And so I was like, you know what? I'm quitting this job. I'm going to be the chef that I'm supposed to be. I'm going to be a famous chef. And uh, uh, it, I applied for a job and I was supposed to get it and I didn't get it. So I told myself I'm going to go back to school and try to get everything in order to go back to school, GI Bill and all that stuff. And didn't get anything in order. Nothing came together. And I wound up being flat on my face, flat broke. And... Uh, Needed, needed something to do. So I went to work at Starbucks. I got a job uh, fumigating grain ships 
and I had a job as a food runner. So, you know, all these things to afford to pay for my, my one bedroom apartment in Northwest Portland that weren't food related, that weren't, you know, really, they were nothing. I was just, I was just an, a line employee. I wasn't important at any, at any of these jobs. I wasn't important, you know, and that was hard for me. And again, it, I kind of took it as a sign eventually, like after about five months, I finally realized, oh, this is humility. This is what humility actually is. This is, this is being okay, just being Andrew, just being normal, just being in this world. Um, and not more than three weeks after I finally made that decision, I was like, oh, you know what? This is okay. I get a phone call from the restaurant that I applied to to be the executive chef. And they're like, hey, our executive chef that we hired, we should have hired you. You were, you know, you were the right candidate. And they called me back and, you know, I, I went in there and all of a sudden I'm getting written about, people are talking about who I am. I'm really making a name for myself in this restaurant scene. And everybody's telling me how wonderful I am. My name's in the newspaper. I'm on TV and the ego, you know, just slowly the ego is building and building and building. And as the ego builds, the spirituality fades, right? So as I become my own God, and, you know, the God that I really understood starts to become less and less important to me, the bigger I am and the harder I'm going to fall. And uh, I fell pretty hard on this one, too. Um, yeah, I, I, I wound up being so mad and so frustrated because I wasn't getting the attention I thought that I deserved that I started self-sabotaging myself in this restaurant and kind of just half-assing it not really giving it the best that I could. And the ownership's like, eh, time for you to go, man. Like, you've hit your point. And that was two years in, you know, I, I really helped this restaurant for two years. Um, they weren't giving me what I thought I deserved as far as pay and respect. And I wasn't getting written about as often as I was. And, you know, my ego got in the way of, of me really just performing to be a, a chef and just provide a really good experience for people to come to the restaurant. And, um, I walked away from it. What restaurant was that? It's called Cafe Nell. Oh, that's Cafe Nell. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's over in Northwest Portland. Yeah, it's a beautiful restaurant. And we did. That's unique. Absolutely. Yeah, we did some awesome stuff there. Uh, Where I met some of my best friends. Uh, It's it's where I met, you know, really developed myself um, as a chef and as a person in those walls. It was pretty cool. Um, But I finally said, you know what? I'm going back to school. I'm going to do it. And the universe aligned school for me. I got into school, started doing that. I started a hot sauce company because I had a, you know, again, I didn't go to high school. When I went to high school, I didn't have to study or do anything like that. And so I had no study skills, no real like school skills. And one of my classes, like intro to business was, Hey, write a business plan for something. And at the time I was just messing around with different sauces and making hot sauce. And, uh, I was like, oh, I'll write a business plan about this. And so wrote a business plan, started a hot sauce company, and we were kind of off and running there. Uh, and it all just kind of, everything just kept kind of falling in place and like doing as it needs to do. And the problem with things that fall into place with someone like myself is that as things become easy to do, I assume that I can take my foot off the gas. So the easier something came, you know, we got into distribution internationally with William Sonoma. And, What's the name of your hot sauce company? Uh, it's called Northwest Elixir, NW Elixir. Um, 
And so, you know, we got into this just giant distribution. Like, no one gets 375 stores before they even figured out how to make sauce, right? Uh, yeah. And so we get in, fill the order, and I take my foot off the gas, 100%. Like, oh, done. Yep, we made this great thing that, that people are going to start calling anytime now. And that's not the way it works. Like, when you have an opportunity like that, you need to put your foot down as hard as you can and just drive into it and push and push and push. And my ego just wouldn't allow me to do that. My ego was like, Hey, we're great. Now people are talking about us again. We're wonderful. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing just continued to happen throughout the history. Um, it's been that way my whole career with the hot sauce company. Uh, and you know, I, I finally, I got on, I got into the show. Uh, if you watch food network, I was on the show chop and, I got into that, and that was another huge ego boost. And with that ego boost, it meant that, oh, I've got this new you know, source of income. I've got this new, you know, people want to talk to me again. So I bought a house um, outside of my means. Like, I, I was in no place to actually buy a house because I didn't really have a really solid, like, good income. I was just kind of, like, doing gigs here and there. And every now and then, the hot sauce company would, you know, make enough money in a month for me to pay myself. Um but because my ego is like, well, the next thing, clearly the next thing to do is to own, own property. Like you should own a house. Uh, and this, I to fit in. this is like, Oh, this is after Oh seven. Now that you're into like, oh. oh, this is, I mean, this is 2015. Okay. We're way Yeah. Off. I mean, okay. Cool. Yeah. My, my timeline is like way, way all over the place. <laughs> um, you know, there, there were a lot of things that happened in between cafe Nell, the hot sure. sauce, Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I want to interrupt you a little bit because I remember yeah. my early days of sobriety and, and, and number one, like really experiencing a lot of the same thoughts you did where it's like I, I, meetings aren't for me. I sh, like sobriety is like for weak people. Like, like this is bullshit. There's no way I should be in here. And, and finally, um, you know, just realizing like, fuck, this doesn't work. Like trying not to drink on my own or trying not to drug on my own is clearly not working. All of my worst um, fights with my wife where I say the most horrible things a man could possibly say to his wife have been said. And, and so I finally was like, okay, I'll try a meeting because someone's like, just, have you tried a meet? They literally just asked me like, have you tried a meeting? And they said it in such a funny way that I was like, could it be that easy? Is that like, you know, putting premium gas in your gas tank? Like, is it just that easy? And when I went, one of the things that really helped me realize that maybe I was in the right place was somebody goes, look, most of us don't have drinking problems. We have life problems. And drinking is the fastest solution to those life problems. And, and, and that is kind of a, something I'm hearing in your story. It's like, your ego is a fucking maniac. Like he wants to like get on it, you know, hit throttle, like just go all the way, hit, you know, ping it. And, and alcohol, like was your, in drugs, was like your kind of way of like keeping yourself in the bounds of what you want to, like who you want to be, you know, projecting your coolness, your tower of cool and, and letting that ego just get fed, basking in the glory of everyone seeing what you're doing. And, and like it, you know, at certain times you had like your, your ego in a headlock and like he somehow got, you know, get out of there. 
you know, I heard someone in a recovery meeting say a few weeks ago, like, while we're not drinking or drugging, like our egos in the other room, our addictions in the other room, like doing push-ups <laughs> and sit-ups, like just preparing, getting ready for it. it's like that one moment you you just kind of screw up and it's like, I'm back, motherfucker, and it's ready. <laughs> it is. Like, it absolutely is. It's like that one time that you feel insecure, your ego's like, here we are. <laughs> That's, that's fascinating. I, you know, 2015, I think that was about the time I run into you. I'm new to, to recovery. I used to listen. I used to live right next door to a, a food supply, like a restaurant food supply place. And I saw you coming out of there. Uh, you know, probably, I don't know what you're doing shopping for cafe. Nell, which was in the neighborhood or stuff for Northwest elixirs and, and, and so we were kind of bumping into each other and I always have a soft spot for restaurant tours, restaurant folks. Um, is that how you met? Literally just, no, I got, I I, I'm sorry. I got I confused. Met him, uh, I met him through a, a mutual, um, sober person. Oh, and then and, you would just run into, yeah. 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 And because I live in Northwest and, sure. and you know, and I, and of course, like God in the universe, when you're struggling for sobriety, like, leaves those little clues for you and you like are kind of jacked and you need to like see somebody who's doing it. Like they suddenly appear. And, um, and I think that's like a pattern in my life when I was really struggling, like suddenly somebody who, you know, I, I respected or, or admired or, or just thought like, man, if that guy can do it, I can do it. Like they would just literally appear appear in my life and, and I'd see him and, and I, and it would just give me a little bit of like a little bit of breathing room and help me on, you know, a little bit more. So you started your, your company and had its ups and downs and, and all this time you're still staying sober and you're going through your different restaurants. You buy a house that you can't afford, um, in there. And I don't think, and, and, you know, I don't want to overspeak here, but like, you're also a guy who just seems to be like an actual do-gooder. Like, like you somehow show up below radar and like help people out. I've seen you do this and, and help organizations out. Like you and I went elk hunting this year and, and you supplied the food for us because, um, you had just been like feeding firemen <laughs> with all those crazy fires. And, and, um, and I I know, and I know you do good because I got to talk to your wife a little bit about it and, and she, she ratted you out on your do good, you know, you being a do-gooder. And, and I was like, I was like, Andrew does good stuff. Right. She's like, yeah, he's like always doing it. Like he's like giving people rides, he's helping people out and raising money for different kinds of things. So, you know, how has that played into like keeping your ego at bay? Like how has that been like in being the antidote to your, your ego wanting to run the show? Uh, man. So yeah. And don't let that introduction to that be, you know, feed your ego. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, in, in today's, in my life today, my, my, my humility scale is pretty imbalanced and God is really quick to, to let me know when I'm not. Um, the, the reality of why I do good things and the reality and why I, why it started is it, it was part of, it was part of the cover up, right? It was, it was part of the cover up from the very beginning when I started drinking. Um, 
you know, everything from seeing kids that were smaller than me get picked on at school. Well, no, that doesn't fly. Cause I'm, I'm the guy like, you know, I, I was the anti-bully. I was the guy that beat up bullies at school and people didn't mess with my friends. And, you know, there was, you know, there was the, there's a specific reason why I do what I do today. Um, I never say no to giving somebody a ride. If someone needs a ride somewhere, I'll do everything I can to give them a ride. Uh, there was a kid named Kyle Ratto who grew up in Sonoma with me. Uh, he was this nerdy kind of goofy ag kid who grew up in an abusive home. His, his family were, uh, were really just kind of not around for him. And uh, his dad used to be drunk and beat him up. And for whatever reason, he and I kind of bonded and, and grew, you know, he was like this little shadow that I had. You know, he wanted to be like me. He, he was great because he would praise me and tell me how great I am and all these, these awesome things. And so I like having him around because, you know, I felt good. I'm like, oh, look at what I'm doing for this kid, you know. And uh, four weeks into basic training, uh, my, I got a letter uh, while I'm at Fort Knox, Kentucky, sitting in basic training, you know, really busting my ass to get a letter and there's news flavor clipping. Uh, and Kyle had been hit by a drunk driver. Uh, and killed because he was walking home and uh that was something that stuck with me for for even till today is like i wasn't there right and like that was at the time in that moment i'm sitting in basic training and i'm like just falling apart crying because i wasn't there and this kid lost his life because of it uh yeah because i was the only wife you know right everywhere everywhere we went you need something we got you and uh, that was a really hard thing for me to, to really swallow. And that that just kind of became this thing where I was always willing to get someone to ride. Uh, and the, the do-good just continued to be this thing that kind of covered up the rest of the bullshit, uh, the rest of the ego trip. Uh, you know, and I've always, again, like I, I've done a lot of good stuff for a lot of people and a lot of those things were genuinely from my heart and they, they were also a great handful of things that I did simply because I wanted someone to tell me how good I am because I wanted to hear that, that experience with, with you, Ron, it, it, you know, I wanted to have people tell me, Oh, you're so great. Look at all this nice stuff you're doing. Look at all this good stuff you're doing. And yes, it was good. It was good. But my intention behind it wasn't, wasn't that way. Uh, and so you, know, you fast forward, I, I, you know, I have this friend of mine who I let live in my driveway. He had a trailer, parked it in the driveway. You parked there. and uh, The one thing that has always been a consistent for me is when I feel like I'm falling apart, if I do something good for someone else, I feel like I'm doing something right. And so I kind of started getting back on this path of, of doing things because it's the right thing to do, not because I want people to tell me that I'm wonderful. And I found this really cool sense of worth when I did stuff for people with no, no, no expectation of others. You know, I, I started doing these things where it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't want, I'm not doing this because I want someone to see it. You know, I started doing stuff just because it's the right thing to do. And in that I, I got, you know, all these, all these opportunities started to come to me, you know, I was cooking dinner for people and doing small events and uh, it all started building again. And it all built back up and I wound up going into foreclosure of my house. 
<laughs> because again, I'm doing all these great things and I'm, you know, being reminded how wonderful I am on a regular basis. And I'm not doing the one thing that's easy for me to do. And that's just pay my mortgage, you know, uh, I'm too busy being cool. I'm, I'm, I'm doing these things that people that I think people think are cool. Uh, I'm going on trips and going out of town, spending money on dates. I'm just, you know, burning through the internet apps and dating apps and just burning and building this giant, big, empty hole inside of myself and filling my ego. So my head's getting bigger. This hole's getting bigger. Um, at the time I, I have an ice cream shop now, uh, around the corner from my house. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I'm the king of my neighborhood. I'm the, the mayor of Montevilla and, uh, from the outside looking in, everything is great. You got a house, got an ice cream shop, a fan base, People see me on TV. They're excited. But at the same time, I'm not paying my damn bills. Like, my phone is getting shut off. My my mortgage is going into foreclosure. And uh, I didn't know what to do one Sunday. And I walked down the street, and I sat in church. And I felt calm for the first time in a long time. And for me now, like, I'm a God guy. Um, I, 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 I've gone back and forth between the universe is great and God and Buddha and Baha'i and all these different like avenues of trying to fill the spiritual spirit, spiritualness for me. And today for me, like that's God today. Right. And, and for whatever reason, I just walked down to that church that day. I lived next to this church for four years. Never once had I set foot in it. And then this one Sunday I just woke up and you know, I was supposed to go to church today. I went to church and I felt calm for the first time in, in two years because I, you know, everything was just gone. I was just a person in the church talking, listening, you know, experiencing that, that spiritualness around me. And came home, sat down, made a plan, called my realtor friend on Monday and said, hey, we're selling the house. By the way, we've got to sell it real fast because uh, it's going to go to foreclosure if we don't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we sold it at a, a, above market value. You know, and I walked out of there uh, at the same time, the ice cream shop, my, my business partner on that was pulling the carpet out from underneath me. And I wasn't really a part of the ice cream shop anymore. And that's a whole nother story inside itself. Uh, but all these things that my ego was built on, my ego was just getting crushed, absolutely destroyed. But at the same time, I'm being given this opportunity to reconnect with God and, and all of a sudden, hey, you've made money on this house, like do right by it. So, you know, I paid off my debt. I don't have debt. And I got out of it. I moved into low-income housing because I didn't have a job. Um, and through this, I, I I realized that, and that was my last that that whole experience that losing the house, losing the ice cream shop, losing that that image. That was my last real big bottom. And like I said, I mean, it's been this continual bottom of the same things, the spiritual emptiness. And that was the last real big one. Um, and, and in that, I realized that like, if I worry so much about chasing popularity, chasing fame, chasing money, chasing all this, all this stuff that I think is important, I lose sight of who I really am. And what is it that I really want to be remembered for? And so I put it back into the community. I put it back into people. I put it back into, you know, how can I help folks? What can I do to, to, to live a life that is just normal, you know? And 
and that's what I've done. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be a, fortunately, unfortunate enough to be a disabled veteran. So I have, you know, I have a small income that exists. And today, like that's, that's what I, I, I'm living off that right now. <laughs> you know, I don't, it, you know, I, I don't, do extravagant things to to try to be this extravagant person i just want to live very simply calmly and look for ways to give back because that at the end of the day like when i'm giving back when i'm finding these things when i'm participating with other humans you know in hunting like just the simple act of being in the woods and connecting with other men and, and having that experience is so much more valuable to me than being on the tv show and having people tell me that i'm wonderful on on instagram you know it's uh it's this really deeply, I try to just, I try to just stay humble. You know, I, I, and when my ego starts getting out of line, I have friends in my life that are like, Hey, you really think that's what's important to you? You know, I don't have friends that are like, Oh yeah, go, 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 go. I have friends that ask me real, you know, real deep questions and they want to know like, Oh, is that really what, what's going to help you? Um, you know, and that's, that's where I'm at today. It's, uh, it's a trip. You know, when COVID hit, I was starting a new job and I had a choice of, you know, either I get to, you know, try to fight unemployment and, and work through and navigate that system. Or I could have my, my prep cook who has been doing this job for four years and, you know, the restaurant wouldn't survive without him. I could have him try to fight it. And then I said, well, you know what, I've got a savings. I've got, you know, I'm set up. So I let him do it and I let him keep his job and I gave up mine and, you know, finally figured out on a boy after so much time but it's like those actions being able to put other people first before myself is uh something that i never really understood before and having that today and now is like it's unbelievable and i do things now because you know i didn't realize christina shared what she shared with you ron um but you know it, it, i don't brag about the good stuff that i do i don't try to do it just i just do it you know, it's, uh, it's become practice. And at this point it, it's really kind of comfortable, which means that I should probably start doing something else, uh, alongside it because comfortable is a real dangerous place for me to be. Um, uh, because it's that, it's that walking that line of less than greater than. And if I'm not walking that line with, with some consciousness to it, uh, with some spiritual guidance and it's just kind of this, uh, crazy world that'll exist, you know? I've got um, uh, two questions for you. Um, We'll kind of wrap this up around these questions. And number one is like, what you're working on a new project, which I think is cool um, around local meat, which I think is a kind of a neat thing. So I want you to to talk a bit, a little bit about that. And then, and then I want you to finish with inevitably someone's going to be listening to this. Who's at a bottom. Like they, they, they're not going to know what the next right move is in their life. And it might be that they're thinking of ending it. It might be that they just don't know what to do. So number one, speak to that, speak to the meats. And number two, um, <laughs> you know, if someone's listened to this long enough and, sur- and survived all this, if they're getting through. It's because they feel that thing inside their hearts. They're like, man, I, I know, I know I need to listen to what's next. So what would you say to somebody? Yeah, I mean, so my colleague and I, uh, when the Oregon fires, like you would, you know, we had the Oregon fires hit, and 
I wasn't really working that much at the time. And so uh, the World Central Kitchen reached out to me and said, hey, can you feed 500 people? I'm like, yeah, sure. So we've been feeding 500 people for a few weeks. Then one of my ranchers called me and they're, you know, being affected by the wildfire areas and the restaurants are closing and they've got these hogs that need to be you know, taken care of. And like, Hey, can you take these hogs? We don't know where else to go. I bought these pigs. And then my colleague was like, Oh dude, will you teach me how to butcher this? Like, sure. Why not? Like I'll teach you how to butcher it and started teaching him how to butcher. And then he's a real philanthropist and he really knows nonprofit and, and how much nonprofits are struggling right now. And he's like, we should sell this meat at a small, you know, at a small markup to supporters of a nonprofit and raise money for that nonprofit with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a win-win. Uh, you know, we take local sustainable produce and put it up into the world. And uh, so that's what we did. And we started doing that. And it's kind of built itself into a, a, a real thing where you can work closely with ranchers, farmers, and other producers to take, you know, whole ingredients, break them into retail-esque packaging and sell them to supporters for less than they'd pay in the grocery store, uh, but enough to help support nonprofit organizations. And so, you know, we're taking these things that we're really passionate about, uh, me being food and ranching and, and helping people and putting it into this, this one thing. And, you know, we'll see how it, see where it goes and what happens with it. But so far, so good. Uh, we're getting a lot of really good advice from people. We ask for a lot of help uh, because I really don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and that's huge for me is if I could ask people for help and, hey, what, what have you done here? Like, how, how would you approach this? Then that's been great for us. Um, for those folks that might be sitting there, you know, at that very bottom point, at, at that bottom for for what it is for them and and being completely empty, feeling broken, lost, like it's not worth anything anymore. Uh, the hardest thing to do, the hardest thing to do is to stop thinking and just relax and take one single action. And that action doesn't have to be go to AA. It doesn't have to be call a friend. You just have to take one single action because a lot of times motivation gets confused. People think that motivation is an action in itself or being motivated creates action. But the reality is that action creates motivation. And when you take that one single act, when it's just stop and give up, stop fighting, just stop fighting. That, that's all it is. It's just stop fighting. Stop and listen to your heart. And know where you're supposed to go because there, no matter what you believe in, no matter where you're at, you could be atheist, agnostic, and otherwise. The reality is that there's something pulling you in a direction, and a lot of times, a lot of stuff gets in between that, and we get confused, and we get lost, and we go down this path that's really dark and really gross. But at the end of the day, you're here for a purpose, and to learn and grow through that purpose is something that you don't want to miss. And it might not be being a famous chef. It might just be someone that exists in this world and does right by other people. But at the end of the day, you have a purpose and there's a reason why you're here. Just shut up and listen to it. Call a friend, take a walk, do anything, but give up and fight through it. Uh, and that, that's really what it is for me. Um, and that's what it was when I was there. So that's, that's great, man. I really appreciate you sharing your story. This has been a huge gift. 
um, to myself. I mean, if anything, it's been a, a giant encouragement to myself, but I know, I just know it. I know somebody's going to hear this story and get to make a life-changing decision based on it. Um, so thank you. Thank you for taking your time. Best of luck with, uh, the new project with, you know, the animals and the meat and all that stuff. Uh, how can people find you? Like where, like, should they follow you on Instagram or what, what should they do? Yeah. I mean, you can follow me on Instagram. It's, uh, it's at chef underscore Garrett. Uh, you can also find me online at, uh, www.chefandrewgarrett.com. Um, pretty much a short search chef Andrew Garrett and you can find me, uh, awesome. shoot me an email and, you know, shoot me a message. Uh, I don't, I don't not respond to people. Uh, and so if someone is out there listening and something resonates really deeply, deeply reach out, uh, let's have a conversation and let's, uh, let's chat and see, you know, how we can be of service together and, and do this stuff. That's rad, man. Thank you. Daniel, you have anything before we end? Uh, just appreciate the story. Uh, it, it um, hits a couple of points or expresses a couple of ex- experiences that I've also had, which is that a lot of these uh, paths to um, pulling your life together, getting out of old ruts, um, really becoming something new. It's It can be a really methodical and long experience. Um, and people, maybe we want it quicker. And there's a sort of irony because it takes a long time and hearing your story from over like a 15, 20 year period, you know, there's this slow change, you know, and you keep hitting the bottom, but you come back up and you come back around and it just, it's a, I kept thinking it's a methodical, it's very methodical, you know, and that, that's what I've experienced. Real change takes time. And, but the other part of that, that you spoke to just here is that it also happens with these distinct small decisions. I often think of these decisions each day as being a brick in a wall, you know, just small bricks. And if you just lay bricks, um, it's not going to build a wall in a day, but as the years pass, you're all of a sudden in a, in a room, you're protected. You've got, um, you've got an entirely different environment, inner environment, you know? And that's, that's pretty much just what I, I value in life is that process, trusting it, making those challenging decisions that can be really small, but lead to larger um, changes. And it just sounds like that's what you experienced. And it was really cool to hear the whole story. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been awesome to be here with you gentlemen. And, and I look forward to hearing more and seeing more of what y'all do. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an awesome world we get to live in. These are the experiences <laughs> that we get to enjoy, you know? Yeah, it's really rad. All right, dudes. Thank you, everybody. Uh, hey, appreciate your everyone's time and uh, see you guys next time. Awesome. Awesome. Have a great day, gentlemen. Hey, we're back. All right. Man, that was a great talk with Andrew. Yeah, agreed. He's a solid human being. Yeah, and he seems like he's earned it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's paid some dues. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard a story that so clearly the world was like slapping you down and then giving you everything and being like, here, and I, I don't, I don't think that he would mind me saying this. I, I, yeah. I mean, this as a compliment, but like he's been given the world and then he just 
just effed it off essentially, you know, not, not totally like, you know, not in the face of, you know, not like flaunting it in the face, but just due to his yeah. nature or whatever. And then that happens again and then again and then again. I mean, just so clearly, maybe it was just the way he was telling the story. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously it's what a 15 year story or 13 year old story Yeah, in an hour, but, um, that's, I, gosh, I mean, I think, I mean, what came up for me was like, how often are we doing that? How often are we, are we like entering into life? Life is like giving us all the signals like, Hey asshole, like stop drinking or stop doing this. And exactly. then you think, you think it's this other thing. And you're like, no, it's actually your, you know, ravenous pride that can never be satisfied. Yes. And, and, and it would, would it would be interesting to ask him, you know, where did you get all, where did you get those things that got in your way? You know, mm. it, in your teens, well, where yeah. did you, you know, go into maybe his childhood? And I'm just curious, you know? And, yeah. It's a great question. You know, because a lot of times where those things aren't anything, they're, they're passed along, right? Sure. It's not like I yeah. chose, you know, to have these circumstances or ways of being that made me susceptible to pride and ego and drinking, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. or whatever. And it, it, it was really nice to hear how he's just growing awareness. I thought that was a subtle conversation and he's lived a, you know, like, again, these words subtle and um, uh, what was the word I was using? Methodical. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Just methodical. And I, I do understand it's, there's a lot more to the story and all that, but still you get the gist. And he, like you said, he said it very clearly. Just, I, I've been in that trough three, four times. I, it was, it was a lovely conversation and really nice to, he, I remember, okay. Last thing real quick. Yeah. When I was in my worst time, what I wanted more, most than anything, Ron, was peace of mind. Hmm. That's all I wanted, peace of mind. That became suddenly so important. And it seems like that's what, what Andrew has gotten. Yeah, man, that's a good way to describe it. That's a really good way to describe it because he's, it's like he, he described tasting all the success he could yeah. taste within those fields and it like wasn't enough. And maybe that's why I'm, you know, I'm not going to guess, but you know, I'm not going to assume, but maybe that's why, like, he kept going back because it wasn't satisfying. Like the success he was finding as a, in business and as a chef or whatever it is, like wasn't. And he was searching for the same thing you just described, like peace of mind, right? Like that peace within himself. And, and now without the trappings of success, without the trappings of whatever we might deem as like success, he has found peace. He has found a lot of confidence. I can tell you like right now, like, you know, the time I've spent with him walking around the woods, hunting, hanging out, like the dude's fucking confident. Like he just <laughs> carries himself really well. And, and, and what's interesting to me is like the way he described his old self was what is like so far from any way I would describe him. Like I would never, oh be able to be like, Oh, that guy's kind of got an ego and he's full of himself and yeah. he's led by his ego. Like, th like that was not on my radar. Like not at all. Like it, like when I was around him, it was like quiet confidence, um, oh. slow to speak, slow to give advice, slow to, uh, assume, you know, just like really like humble in all of it. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to see someone having, uh, that my experience with him went in that way. And then hearing like, wow, it's totally different. in in his old life. Yeah. Interesting. Did you learn a lot about him 
in our conversation? Was yeah. Most of that. Yeah, a lot. Did. <laughs> I was, like I didn't realize it was so bad. <laughs> you didn't what? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, um, he, you know, he was very honest. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, I've been in the recovery community for a, a while now and, and in a recovery meeting, an AA meeting, um, or any recovery meeting, you hear, you hear a five minute section of someone's story, Yeah, you know, because everybody's got to have some time to talk and, and all that. And, and so maybe over the course of months or years, you can kind of get this like clearer picture yeah. and, and then he and I have been hanging out a little bit and then we went hunting for a whole week. We're freaking talking about hunting the whole time. You know, we're like trying to, you know, get up on some elk. And, and so sure. we weren't going down sure. those paths sure. very much, but what little I did hear during that time, I thought, damn it, like this has got to be heard. And, and it changed my perspective on his ability to be human. I mean, that's, that's rad. It's really rad. Yeah. And I think one of my, one of the, my favorite parts of, of the conversation was when he was talking about how, when you were asking him about the good things he does, all the good, good he does in the world, yeah. you know? Um, and how he was saying that that became almost another type of ego, uh, trip for him. Mm-hmm. You're right. Um, I know. I mean, he really kind of like, yeah, like dodged that one, didn't he? Like he, like he really parried that out of the, out of there. Well, and I thought that was a nuanced and very honest answer. I don't yeah. really know what his the truth, 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 truth is. Who knows if he yeah. knows? Anybody knows? Yeah. You know. But that felt like the truth. And I personally, you know, this is you're, you're talking about being led. You know, that's important. Yeah. You know, we're cutting for sign. Well, I'm cutting for sign all the time, man. And mm-hmm. I'm doing it during our podcast. And one of the nice things about uh, being a more of a listening role in, in the conversations is that you can cut for sign. I'm listening, but I'm also mm-hmm. filtering, you know, and, and where is this person, what they're telling me, what, how is it what I need to hear right now? And don't get me wrong. That's not how, that's not my priority, yeah. but it's there. Yeah. And, you know, it personally, I've recently discovered that, you know, I've always been a little bit selfish and, um, part of that reason is because I didn't really know how to take care of myself in all the ways that you and I talk about all the time, you know, and that's a lot of what you're doing and I'm doing and we're figuring it out. Right. Well, if you don't take care of yourself, you kind of always are stuck in that. Like I need to, I need something. I need something. Right. Well, I found now if I'm taking care of and let's check 10 boxes, you know, I've got food in my stomach. It's the right food. I've gotten some sleep. I'm creatively fulfilled. My finances are together. My environment's clean. Uh, And then maybe about four or five more. Yeah. Um, well, if those boxes are checked now, all of a sudden I'm not as selfish and I have my teacup overfloweth and now I've got something to offer. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've been experiencing literally just in the last maybe six months that it feels really good to have something to offer little things, bringing something to someone's house when you visit them, you know, um, giving someone a ride, like he was saying that ride thing, you know, that's yeah. the way I can be more generous. And I've been doing that more and making a meal for someone, noticing someone's needs and then being like, F it. They, maybe they need, they mean, maybe they might enjoy someone just doing this for them, you know, Yeah. but he's right. It then turns into a, like, it feels so good to do that. Are you really doing it for the person or for that good feeling? You know, And then you're into an existential conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because it can be both, right? Like they're like, I think so. I, I wrote, I wrote something of the day about, um, about how easy it is for a guy or a man to chase 
pursue adventure, pursue acclaim, pursue like, you know, the kind of more exciting things in life and how we can get kind of stuck in like Peter Pan syndrome, like where we're never growing up because we're always just going after the thrill. And yet on the very same, you know, on the other side of that coin, all of those things can be there to build your heart and, and grow you and make you a better person and make you a better person to your family and to, into the world. Like, and so you can't ever disregard any of those things as like all good or all bad. Like it's a really strange nuanced position of the heart and the mind. Nice. And, and it all belongs, right. It like all can be for the benefit of good. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, the Peter Pan story hook with Robin Williams, you know, he doesn't stay in the Peter Pan. Movie. He comes back, but he comes back with a piece of that. I do yeah. too. You know, and yeah. that's what we're seeking for seeking, right. Is come back with the thing that's in the Neverland of learning a new instrument or the Neverland of, of learning to bow hunt, you know? Yeah. Part of us wants to live that entirely or maybe extremely, but you just bring a part of it back here and into this, you know, the lead of life, you know, and you you just, you just um, feather it with gold a little bit from these, these adventures. And um, I think that it sounds like, you know, we even just to be honest, like to be like share a little bit of, you know, his story isn't like, oh, I fucking did it. Now I'm a champion of the world. And I'm like, you know, that, that wasn't the, I don't think that was the beauty and value of his story. You know, the, the gold at the top of the mountain is like I said, I think it's these days it's calmness, you know, it's a peace of mind. It's, it's a humility that you still are on the adventure. And maybe, maybe, maybe Andrew has another dip down or two. I get the feeling that his dips are not going to be as deep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and his, um, there's a lot of success in the contentment he feels right now. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I I don't know him as well as you do. And I don't mean to insinuate too. I'm checking myself a little bit that he has more valleys. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, I don't know, man. Uh, I I appreciated his story uh, quite a bit actually. Yeah. It was super beautiful. Well, dude, thank you. Uh, this is our number one, episode one. Got a lot more to do. Total pleasure, man. It's so neat to just meet someone new and who's out there yeah. doing something. It's great. Thank you for the for the experience. You're welcome. Okay. Yeah.